Ooh, yeah, that, good timing. Well, good morning again. Good to see everybody, smiling, awake, kind of. Hey, I got a few uh, thank yous that I need to throw out here before we get into the message. Um, so first of all, thank you very much uh, for a couple weeks ago, surprising uh, Kim and me for pastor appreciation. That's uh, very difficult to do. I usually find out and then I act surprised, but I was actually surprised. So uh, thank you very much for doing that. I uh, appreciated that, the, the words, the cards, the gifts. When we were driving to Chicago, Kim was reading them all um, as we were going along, and then I was crying, and I couldn't see where I was going, and it was just so beautiful. Um, but thank you for that. I appreciate that. And thanks for the prayers as we went out and cared for my dad uh, for a week. Gave my brother and sister-in-law a break, and they really appreciated that, and <clears throat> never thought I would um, be doing that for my, my dad, but um, it was, in that sense, kind of a sweet time to be able to be with them and um, basically do the stuff for him that he used to do for me when I was a, a little kid and um, got to tuck him into bed at night and kiss him goodnight and um, so it was it was a special time. I also want to thank Luke for coming up from Fremont and, and preaching last week. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that and uh, good guy. appreciate him doing that. And I also want to just thank our church family. Um, you know, as as um, Logan was talking about, or as he was praying, just talking about our growth and stuff like that, and so thankful for that. But what, what's really exciting is that you continue to, to take care of each other. <clears throat> uh, you're there for each other. You're helping each other through difficult times. And there's a lot of uh, phone calls that go on and texting goes on and emails that go on, and we're trying to work um, together and, and helping each other out. And I'm so thankful uh, for that, to see our church doing what God's called us to do. And um, and not just with each other, but then with our, our campus, the property that we've been giving. You know, we want to make sure that we're uh, good stewards, good managers of what God's given us. And so we're constantly making sure our building looks good and <clears throat> structurally sound. I mean, the new roof that we got going on, so that's exciting, yeah. Uh, the stonework is going to be possibly done this afternoon that we're kind of excited about. Um, so those things are important. Uh, it makes a difference to the neighbors as they drive by and all that. And so I uh, appreciate you guys doing that. We were able to finish off the cost of the roof and get the roof being put on. So they're going to probably finish early next week on that. Um, and so just like we need to take care of our building, our property, uh, we have a responsibility to be proactive in our own spiritual lives. And so as believers, as a church uh, of believers coming together, we have a responsibility to be proactive uh, in that. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So we're going to be in First Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. I really wish we could change the name of that because when you have a speech impediment, it kind of, it's hard to say that word all the time. Um, and then Thessalonica, I mean, wow, it's kind of good. Anyways, so we're um, in that chapter, chapter 4. It's page 1183 if you're using the Bible there and it cheers. Uh, and so we found out that the point of, this, of these letters, we're actually going to be looking at 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, um, and so, which is kind of unusual. Usually we just do one or the other, but we're going to combine them. And uh, we're looking at um, how are we supposed to live knowing that Jesus Christ is coming back. Because here's the deal. The first century church, they thought that Jesus Christ was coming back in their lifetime. So they really you know, kind of took hold of this idea that you know, God, um, God the Son 
became man and lived on this earth and died on the cross for our sins and then went back to heaven. He said, hey, I'm coming back. And they're like, he's going to probably come back in our lifetime. And so uh, a lot of the people, like the people in uh, Thessalonica, um, they, they kind of said, okay, then we need to do what it is that Christ has called us to do. And so they were going about it. Chapters 1 through 3, we talked about last week. They were caring for each other. They were sacrificing for each other. Again, this is a time of persecution, so the church was being persecuted. The, the vast majority of people who were coming to Christ were the poor uh, who were coming to Christ. There were some wealthy Christians, but primarily poor Christians. And so they needed to come together and help each other and encourage each other and provide for each other. And they were reaching out and telling other people about Christ. People who didn't have the Bible were going out and telling people about Jesus Christ. Think about it. What did they have to tell? What God was doing in their life? What God was doing in their life doing what? Taking care of everybody else? So they're telling the stories of how God was meeting their need and the needs of others through them and it was just a beautiful thing. There was others, though, that we find out and we'll be looking at here in the next week or two that um, were distracted by the fact that Jesus was coming back. And they, they thought that, hey, I don't need to do any of my daily responsibilities. I just need to sit here and just wait for Jesus to come back. I don't need to do anything. So Paul's going to talk to them. And then still others who had questions. Uh, like next week, we're going to be talking about, okay, what happens to the people who die before Jesus comes back? What, you know, what, what's going to happen there? So Paul explains that. So as we know, uh, Jesus didn't come back in the first century. Uh, he hasn't come back today. Could happen. It'd be pretty cool, right? Um, we're sitting here and all of a sudden, poof, we're in heaven. Whoa, that was weird. Yeah. Um, so, but what's interesting is as you look at our world today, and you look at what the Bible says about what the world's going to be like when Jesus does return, uh, which, by the way, guys, if you're not coming on Thursday night, you're missing out because we're going through the book of Revelation and talking about what's the world going to look like. Well, when you look at it and you look at what's going on in our world, when you look at how all the governments are coming together and they're all working together, they just all agreed on a, uh, a tax. So a, a global tax is going to happen because all these different... Uh, nations are coming together. The, the global um, businesses, you know, there's businesses now that are more powerful than the nations even. That's coming together. That's what Revelation talks about happening. How the, the government and the, and the media and the powerful people are all kind of manipulating and coercing and putting pressure on people to do the things that they want them to do. You can kind of see how when the Bible talks about the some Antichrist coming along and some government agencies causing people to do what they want them to do, you can kind of see it all playing out. People make fun of the Bible, and yet things keep on going in that direction. And so the question for us today is, all right, so then how should we live? It, it looks like the world's going in a direction that the Bible says it's going to go in. And so... We believe Jesus is going to come back, so how do we live? Well, Luke gave us a story. Poor guy had to cover three chapters last week, but I think he did a pretty good job doing that, but kind of giving us a, kind of the back story to what happened there and how Paul came in there, him and his team, and, and how they lived among them and shared their lives with them and shared the gospel with them. And so we're going to look at, in chapter 4 then, he's going to start answering these questions about how we're supposed to live. So jump right into it. Verses 1 and 2, 
he says this, finally, brother, and he just kind of got done complimenting him. Now he's going to go on and do some answering. So uh, four and five, he's going to answer. So finally, brethren, we request and exhort. And these are two words like um, encouraging words. You know, Paul's not coming down on these guys like he's done in some other churches. Uh, this is really him kind of coming around. He just loved these people. Uh, they were so faithful to, to do what God called them to do. And so he requests and exhorts you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how, to, how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this idea that, okay, Jesus is coming back, how are we supposed to live? Paul says, excel still more. Nothing changes. Keep doing what God's called you to do. And what's God called us to do? Well, chapters 1 through 3 summarize that for us pretty well. That we're supposed to be taking care of our daily responsibilities. We're supposed to be taking care of our families. We're supposed to be taking care of our church family. And we're supposed to be reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then when they come to Christ, we're to be walking alongside of them. Helping them understand their relationship with Christ. And helping them put off the the old way of doing life. And to take on a new way that God wants them to live. We're all to be doing it. Nothing changes. Everything stays the same except... Excel still more. Do it more and more and more. Better and betterer and more betterer. I'm from Chicago. That's, my, that's good English from Chicago. No, we're, we're supposed to... And, and what does that look like? Well, when, when people are... Um, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's okay. When, when people are uh, coming to Christ and we walk with them, we, we walk with them. We take them through the situation. We help them understand what God's Word says. But then there's going to be more people coming to Christ. And so then we have more people to do that with. You know, so the more and more is not just a personal thing of us becoming more and more like Christ. It's a, it's a family thing, a church family thing, where we do it more and more, more often. And so we, we continue to do life God's way. Paul talks about this command in four different ways. So chapter 3, verse 12, he says that you would increase and abound in love for believers and unbelievers. So as we know Christ is coming one of these days, and so since he's coming one of these, what do we need to do? We need to increase and abound in our love, sacrificial love, for believers and unbelievers, people who need Christ. Twice in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, he says, excel still more. So he uses that twice. Three times he says in these verses that we are to, um, uh, uses the word sanctification, which that's a big theological word you can impress your friends and family with. But it basically just means that you grow, become more like Christ, to become more dedicated to God, doing life the way God wants you to do it, more and more, looking for more areas in your life where you're not doing it God's way and, and do it God's way. Now, this is important for these believers. These believers were being persecuted. Government officials were on them. Jewish officials were on them. Their neighbors were thinking they were kind of strange. And so they were being persecuted. They were losing their jobs. People were being arrested. People were being jailed. People were being killed for their faith. And so whether it's these persecuted Christians or the persecuted Christians we have in the world today, because we have them in a lot of different countries, we can see where they would need to be encouraged with this, right? 
I mean, not that we get it. We don't understand persecution at all. We might have somebody laugh at us. Oh, you know. But these people were losing stuff, including their lives. So we see where they were to be scared, where they would be discouraged, where they would be saying, no, is it really worth it? Is it really worth doing life God's way compared to doing it everybody else's? Because if you do it everybody else's way, it's like it's easy, Right? talk like them, act like them, do the stuff that they do. Nobody gives you a hard time. Nah, you just do it. It's easy. Doing like God's way, man, this is, this is hard. And then like non-persecuted Christians, you know, like us, the, the very few, by the way, in all of Christianity who haven't been persecuted, for us, it's, we get so self-focused. We get so focused on being comfortable. Don't want to get, don't want to do anything to ruffle anyone's feathers. You don't want to, you know, do anything too sacrificial because, I mean, look at this. We sit in this nice auditorium, right? We got the heat on, almost a little bit too much for me, but hopefully you guys are enjoying it. Got these comfortable chairs. We got this beautiful campus. We're talking about some things we're going to do in the future, Lord willing. We get so focused and to, to get the stuff that the world has and continue to have all the comfortability that the world tells us that we need. So we work hard, we go to work, we make the money to buy and get stuff for ourselves, to be comfortable. And inevitably, apathy rolls in. Because it gets comfortable, right? Coming to church on Sundays like this, hanging out, having some coffee, some tea, some water. Sometimes people bring donuts, and I don't like them for doing that, because I can't eat them. But I enjoy everybody else enjoying them. (laughs) You know, and, and pretty soon it's just like, yeah, things going smooth, man. I don't want to, I don't want to mess this up. Work's good, money's coming in. You know, it's nice out on Sunday. The lawn's kind of tall. Maybe at nine or ten thirty, I'll decide to mow my grass. We become apathetic. God's saying excel, excel still more, but we're like, yeah. I mean, how else would you explain? The fact that now regular church attenders come 50% of the time. It used to be regular church attenders every week. Because that's what God says to do. But now today, well, if I go 50% of the time, yeah, that's good. That's all right. I give a little bit in the offering plate. I'm a regular church attender. But God says we're supposed to be meeting regularly during the week with our church family. Encouraging, learning, worshiping, serving. How do you speak to serving? How do you explain that only 20% of members in any, uh, any average church serve in the church family? Now, Grace Point, we probably got about 25 to 30%, so we're doing well. But God says 100% should be. You're supposed to serve within your giftedness. I'm supposed to serve within my giftedness. Still trying to figure out what that is. But I'm working on it. Just want to let you know. Still working on it. God says everybody who's a believer, needs to be serving in church. Serving the church family. Serving Christ through serving the church family. And so let me just throw a couple things out for you. If you're in high school or above, if you're a man or a woman, which I think we get pretty much everybody in here, right? All men, all women. Okay. Grace kids. We've gone to two hours. We've took a step of faith, saying, okay, God, we know we need people to do this. And some of our people are doing it. Some people are doing it two hours. 
But men, I know this seems kind of weird. Men, why are we not serving in Grace Kids? Wouldn't it be awesome for the kids of our church to see other men who care about who God is? I mean, the women always help with Grace Kids, you know. But men, what are we doing? We've got tech needs. We've got music needs. Those are just what we do on Sunday morning. How do you explain that 70% of Christians seldom or never read their Bible during the week if it's not that we're apathetic, that we're not excelling still more? When God says we're supposed to be in His Word, spending time with Him. When we read this, you guys, it's not just me reading some, you know, ink on a page. God's Holy Spirit lives in me, dwells in me. I'm not God, but His Holy Spirit dwells in me. That's what the Bible says. And these are God's words. And so as I'm reading, God's speaking to me. His Holy Spirit's helping me understand it. And as I pray or talk back to God in a proper, respectful way, you know, as I communicate, as I have questions, and I do it in a journal, so I'm writing questions down, and I'm asking God things, and I'm prepping for my messages. I'm saying, okay, God, I was doing it for this passage. Okay, God, there's some hard stuff here. How am I, help me to understand. How am I going to, you know, present this in a way that's understandable, that's clear? And how do we explain that 95% of Christians have never prayed with somebody else who's accepted Christ? We're supposed to be sharing our faith. And if we're sharing our faith, we're going to be around people who want to come to Christ. And if we're around people who want to come to Christ, we're going to pray with them, right? I mean, great when they come here and people accept Christ here. Awesome, that's great. It's a wonderful thing. The majority of these believers, from what we gather, they got it. They understood it. They were going to excel. Paul was confident that these people, these Christians who didn't have a Bible who only had what Paul told them and then what Timothy told them in the letter that he wrote to them, they got it. And so they were sacrificing for each other. They were sacrificing their money, their food, their time. If they had you know, email and texting and phones, all kinds of they would have been emailing, they would have been texting, they would have been phone calling, they would have gone over to somebody's house, they would have been checking on them. That's what Christians do for each other. Because these people were losing family members. So somebody had to come around them. That's what the church family is for. These, some of these families had family members who rejected them because of their faith in Christ. Well, who better to come around them than the family of God who they're going to spend eternity with? If their family members never accept Christ, then they're only going to know them for this time on earth. But those who accept Christ and who are part of the family are going to spend eternity together. And in one sense... Those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, we are closer to each other because of God the Holy Spirit than our blood relatives. But a lot of us, we, do, we don't, it's hard to grasp that. And so we feel pressure from our family members at times. I, I've had that in my life. Again, they didn't have the Bible, but they shared the gospel. They had what they had. The story of how God has been impacting them when people came to Christ, they walked with those people. They spent time with those people. They, they answered the questions the best they could. And when they couldn't, they, they kind of got together and encouraged them. Okay, let's just keep doing this. And then, you know, we'll hear from Paul or maybe Timothy will come and tell us some more. But hang in there. 
They walked with their friends and family who came to Christ. They didn't have them come to Christ and leave them hanging. They didn't pass them off to somebody else. If you're sitting here thinking, man, that's not easy. You're right, it's not. And those of you in our church who are doing this, you get it. You know that this is not easy. This takes time. This takes energy. This takes sometimes our money. It's draining. But like the people in Thessalonica understood, we wouldn't want to do anything else. Why? Because this is what it feels like to increase and to abound in love. This is what it feels like to excel still more in sanctification, becoming more dedicated to God, to know that, man, God is working in us, through us, to impact other people. And other people are doing stuff in their life that they would never have done before. And we get to be a part of that. Releasing people from pain and from hurt and frustration and hopelessness by giving them Christ. And then Christ comes into their life and frees them up. And then it's, then it's the hard work. Listen, guys. This is biblical Christianity. Well, I just got done explaining what we've been reading in 1 Thessalonians. This is biblical Christianity. If you, if you think that Christianity is something else, I'm, I'm, don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you from what the Bible says, you're wrong. What I just explained is biblical Christianity. If we're not doing that, we're not living out the Christian life that God's called us to live. We're not following the footsteps of Jesus Christ. So then Paul goes on. He's going to deal with two uh, social issues, if you want to put it that way, or some things that were happening inside the church, potentially. And he probably got them from you know, Timothy's report or if they wrote a letter to him. And so here's the, the first one. It's kind of like, wow, it's kind of interesting that you throw this one as the first one. He says, for, for this is the will of God. Anybody here want to know what God's will is for their life? You know, I have people in my office all the time just trying to figure out what God's will is for my life. I just don't know what God's will is. Well, we're going to find out some things in these, ver- in these letters that are God's will. Here's the first one. Your sanctification, that excelling spiritually. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's kind of a weird thing to throw in there. Right? What about reading the Bible? You know, what about going to church? Why? All right. That each of you know how to possess or control his own vessel, his body, in sanctification dedication to God, and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles or or unbelievers, just another word for unbelievers, who do not know God. In other words, they're controlled by their desires, not controlled by God. We have the same desires as Christians, right? That that sexual desire God put in us, and we've, we've talked about that before, but there's a different way of responding. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother or a fellow Christian in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger. And all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification to become more dedicated to him. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to us. Sexual immorality. It's any sexual activity outside of marriage, which marriage is between a man and a woman. This is what the Bible teaches. Now, the context here, what's, what's he talking about? Well, first of all, whether it's 1st century, 21st century, or if we ever get to the 22nd century, all humans have a, a sexual drive that God has given to us. It was designed in us, given to us, Genesis chapter 2, 
And it was supposed to be used within marriage. Now, we did a family hacks series here recently. I talked on this, so you can go back and find that on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Facebook, and you can find the one on marriage. And I talk more about what's the gift that it, that is, the purpose for that, and, and the, the positives, the blessings, all that that come with it. But in the first century, what was a little bit different than what we have today is in the first century, their whole society was built on their religions. And every single religion, except for Judaism back then, which was what the Jews uh, followed, and Christianity, of course, was centered on worshiping gods, gods of nature. And so one of the gods was the god of fertility. And it had to do with, you know, your animals making sure they have uh, offspring and they're talking about harvest and you want sure that you have more grain and, you know, corn and all that kind of stuff. But it also had to do with human offspring. And so what they would do is they would celebrate the desire that their god wanted them to be fertile and the guys would go to the temple and they would pay for a prostitute and that's what their worship was. They'd have music. It was a, it's the ultimate sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? You know, they would go there, they'd have their music. I'm not making a joke. This is actually what took place back then. Their whole society was built on that. It, w- it was like, if you didn't do that, you were nuts. Which is why the Jewish people back then and Christians looked nuts to them. Because everybody was doing it. It's just what you do. It's just a natural thing that humans do. The animals do it, so humans do it. It's just everyone does it. Our gods want us to do it. Well, the difference about today is we don't have religions necessarily pushing it. We've become our own religion. We think to ourselves, like everybody else in the world does, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a sex drive, so you have a desire, so yeah, you feel it. You have to eat, right? So you eat. You feel you need to have a sex, yeah, so you have you go have sex. That's just what everybody does. God's like, no, that's not how I designed it. That's not where you find satisfaction. It's not where you find fulfillment. And then the world goes, you're nuts, right? Because what God says oftentimes to people sounds nuts. And why we as Christians, like everybody else, struggle with that. We're like, come on, really, God? Everybody else is doing it. So sir, surely we should be doing it. But he says, no, Christians, we're to possess our bodies or control our bodies with this God-given sex drive that he's provided us. And it's to be kept only for marriage. Because, again, I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but he says this way, it's, it's sanctified. In other words, we are dedicating ourselves to God. And and we do that with our spouse, and only with our spouse. And there's a bunch of reasons why we do that, so go to Family Hacks and find out why. And so we dedicate, we've dedicated ourselves to to Christ when we gave our lives to Him, right? And now He's saying, okay, you trust me for heaven, now trust me for this one. Don't be involved sexually outside of marriage. And in the process of that, of saying, okay, Lord, I know this is what you want me to do. I don't quite understand it, and people are making fun of me about it, but that's fine. I'm going to do it your way. This is hard, but you spending time with God and His Word, praying about it, asking Him to give you the strength to do it, and His Holy Spirit's in you to give you the strength to do it, you getting together with other Christian people and helping you and keeping you accountable, all that's part of that sanctifying thing about becoming more and more dedicated to God, excelling still more. We're not to transgress or defraud others. We're not to sin against others. We're not to take advantage of others. 
You know, the old saying, if you love me, you'll have sex with me. Or because you're not having sex with me, you don't love me. Can I just tell you guys something? That is not love talking. Love doesn't coerce. Love doesn't manipulate. Love doesn't threaten. Love is sacrificial. That's selfishness talking. That's your own personal sex drive talking. The greatest, listen, if you're, if you're dating, uh, if you're engaged, if you think about dating, if you think about getting engaged, let me just throw something at you and you soak it in. We can talk about it later. The greatest demonstration of love that you can show the person that you're dating or engaged to is not having sex with them. Why do I say that? Because if you're doing that, what's the focus of your relationship? Who the person is. Not what they can give you. And so you spend time with them. And you get to know them. And you know their strengths and their weaknesses. And what irritates them and what frustrates them. And how you best can help them. And then at some point you decide to get married. Now all the other stuff, boom, there you go. Now you're free. Spend time together. And if you do what God calls you to do, dare I say it, sex is worship. Okay, I'll move on. <laughs> Usually somebody drops over when I say that in a church setting, but whoop! Um, no, it is, right? When we do life God's way, it's worship. And now, that you're, you and your spouse, you can enjoy each other, and everything that God wants for you to have through that sexual experience can be yours. Genesis 2.24, Ephesians 5. And, it, and if you don't do it prior to, then, then that's just fully enjoyed here with nothing that you had to remember and have to constantly you know, fight back. But if you have done that here, you can still get into a marriage and do it God's way. And you and your spouse can work through those times that you keep coming back to you and that God has forgiven you for because of what Christ has done on the cross. The greatest demonstration of love is to wait until you're married, to have the sexual experience that God has designed for us. Paul gives us two reasons why we do this. Number one is that God is the avenger. That word means that justice done so as to rectify a wrong that's done. In other words, when God sees wrong being done, he's going to avenge who's ever being hurt. And so we can trust God with that. We can trust that he's going to do that. He's going to take care of the person who's been hurt in that relationship by not being involved sexually. Now, his discipline can come on the other person in a bunch of different ways, but let me just, one way that I think is, is very real, um, and that's this. When, when we choose to stay in that sexual immorality, whether it's an you know, actual sexual experience with another person or whether it's pornography or fantasy or whatever, we live in a dark whole. It, it sucks you dry. It's not satisfying at all. Maybe for a split second, but then it all comes crashing down. It's, oh. And God's like, I don't want that for you. I want you to be sanctified. I want you to, to be more and more like Jesus. I want you to experience the freedom of not having the guilt. I want you to experience the joy of doing life my way. 
of being free from all that. And so allowing you to sit in that is one of the ways that he avenges, that he corrects the wrong. Because what he wants you to do is finally turn to him. I can't handle this anymore, God. And he says, I got the answer. Just, you got to do it my way. And we do it his way. And the second reason why is, what reason why is because we are called in sanctification. That word called there means to be, to invite, to experience a special benefit or experience. And what's that? Sanctification. Becoming more like Jesus Christ. Can you imagine having the confidence of Jesus Christ? <laughs> you know, when you think about it? Man, he walked around. He didn't walk around going, ah, hello, people. You know, like somebody's movie show him. No, he was a carpenter. You know, he was sunburned. He, had, he was ripped. You know, they had, to, they had to call for the sewing, you know, and the needle and thread because he was ripped. It's just a joke. You get, did you get the tickets? What tickets? To the gun show? We were talking about it last night. Anyways, uh, sometimes I get off track. I got to stop doing that. And so he, he wants us to become more like Christ. We're invited to experience that, that confidence, that strength, that joy. He didn't call us to impurity. He didn't call us, call us to sit in some stinking hole that we don't want to be in, but to live above that and do life his way. And he ends that little section by saying, listen, if you reject, if you put this to the side, then you're not rejecting Paul, you're not rejecting Harold, you're rejecting God. Because he's the one saying this. In verses 9 through 12, he, he goes on to another issue. So we're going to read that real quick. He says, Now as to the love, and that in the Greek is brotherly love, Philadelphus. Uh, so as to the love, the brotherly love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by, are taught by God to love. That's agape, the sacrificial love. So he's saying, listen, really, I don't need to be talking about this, but I'm just going to kind of remind you, because God's teaching you how to sacrificially love. How's he doing that? Because there's people who need to be sacrificially loved. <laughs> and so they're doing it. And in doing that, what happens? Well, you have this familial love that happens. This, man, I really enjoy being, I mean, I enjoy coming here on Sunday mornings, Thursday nights, and during the week when, when you guys are here. I, I enjoy it. I miss it when we're gone. Why? Because there's a familial love that comes from the sacrificial love. For indeed, you do practice it toward all brethren who are in all Macedonia. So it's just beyond Thessalonica. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more, to love more and more and more sacrificially, and to make it your ambition. Now this is, I don't know, about you guys, but it seems kind of weird. It says, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you. I thought we were supposed to be reaching out for Christ. Why is Paul telling us that we need to be sitting in our houses, staying focused on what we're doing in our houses? It doesn't make any sense. Why are you going to do that? So that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So there's a benefit for unbelievers if we do that, and there's, of course, a benefit for us and that we're going to meet our own needs if we do this. So what's he talking about? <laughs> because it, looks, it sounds kind of contradictory, doesn't it? That we need to be focused on ourselves. Well, first of all, lead a quiet life. It means to refrain from disturbing activity or things that cause distractions. Attend to your own business. These are, by the way, just, just one word in the Greek, and we have like three words, four words. So attend to your own business means to accomplish your daily responsibilities. And work with your hands means to 
do your job <laughs> to work. So what's the context here? Well, again, so there's some believers who are so excited that Jesus Christ was coming back that, that they actually quit working. That they're like, well, Jesus is coming back. It probably could be this, like, this week. And so we're not going to work. Well, imagine what that did to all the other Christians who got it, who understood what Paul was saying. What are you guys doing? So possibly some division going on in the church. That word was kind of getting out to the unbelievers. As unbelievers kind of like, what is going on? The church is all divided and they got some people who are not working. And why aren't people working? Everybody needs to work. Why are these Christians working? Well, because Jesus is coming back. We, we don't want to work because Jesus is coming back. Which, by the way, if you've lived long enough, you know there are some Christians who have done something very similar to this back in the 80s. Um, you can look it up. So what, what was happening here, and kind of bringing it more to our day, they were so focused on Jesus' return that they forgot what Jesus commanded. Now, we get it, and most of us aren't sitting here going, I'm not going to go to work tomorrow because I think Jesus is coming back. We, we believe Jesus is coming back. And so really the message for us is we, we, can't, be, we can't be distracted by doctrinal stuff to the point that we don't follow through on what Jesus commands us to do. So they were allowing this doctrine that was meant to encourage them and motivate them to cause them to sit there and not do anything. They weren't taking care of their earthly responsibilities. So here's the deal. What's our earthly responsibilities? Yes, it's work. And that's the first place we all go to, right? Earthly responsibilities. Oh, I gotta go. Right, work, work. It's not just work. It's your family. So it's your wife, your husband, your children. But it's your church family is your earthly responsibility as a Christian. Unbelievers in your life are your personal responsibility according to what God says. So it's more than just work. When he says that you need to attend to your own business, we need to be focusing in on what is it that God's called us to do. It always comes back to the gospel. So this life that's focused, it's, it's doing life God's way, it, it's, uh, it, it's um, God's working in it, and so there's a, a sense of order, that's attractive to non-Christians because their lives are a mess. Their lives are all over the place. But when Christians are doing life God's way, that, that kind of draws them in. So Paul's point is, don't let the return of Christ distract you from the commands of Christ. Interesting, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, where it says, go and make disciples. Make disciples is the verse, is the, or the main verb. Go is, uh, I think it's a participle is what they call it, whatever the case. It means as you are going, as you live life. Paul is just rewording Jesus' commission to Christians that as you live life, as you go through your life, as you do life God's way, represent him in how you do it. And that will draw people to you, then you can draw them to Christ. And Lord willing, they'll put, place their faith in Christ. Don't be distracted by what's going on in our world. Don't be distracted by the potential um, Jesus coming back tomorrow or a week from now. Stay focused on what it is that God's called us to do, to excel still more in loving our family, our Christian family, and loving those who need to come to Christ. So I want to just end with this takeaway. We're not going to close in a song today. I just want, I'm going to read this, and then it's going to take a few seconds. You guys can close your eyes and bow your heads. And I just want you to ask God this question. 
So what is distracting you from fulfilling God's commands to sacrificially care for other Christians and intentionally sharing the gospel with unbelievers? So let's just take a moment. You think about that. You pray, have a conversation with God about it. And as he gives you something, something comes to your mind, just maybe write that down. But just close your eyes, bow your head. I'll give you a few seconds here to just have some quiet. Go ahead and stand. We'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. And uh, I say this often, but I thank you for the clarity of your word. I, Lord, it's simple what you call us to do, but we get in the way and we make it difficult. Our fears, our concerns, our questions. And Father, help us to take a step of faith first and let you show yourself in that step of faith. And then as we spend time in your word more, we get more, more clarity on what you want us to do. And then as we take more and more steps of faith and see you at work, we become more confident in your leading and confident in what you want us to do and confident that you're going to take care of what needs to be taken care of. Lord, thank you so much for your promise, promises to us. Thank you so much for the Holy Spirit who lives in us who have placed our faith in Christ. Help us to represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thanks for